0: What do you think you need? And of course, I mean really need. There are all kinds of things that we say we need, but they're really just wants. We say things like, I really need to get the next iPhone, or I really need to get a new car, when in reality, what we mean to say is that we really want these things. We don't need them. Sometimes we'll say things like, I really need some space right now. I I really need some peace and quiet. I really need some rest, maybe after a busy or stressful day at work. And we say this thinking that these are needs when in fact they're really just strong desires. We think we need some time alone to rest and think, but that's really just a preference. It's something we like, not something we must have. We won't die or something like that if we don't see one of these kinds of so-called needs fulfilled. They're just something we really, really want. People say things like, I really need some coffee right now. And listen, I know some of you think you need coffee, but you won't die if you don't get your coffee. You might get a headache or something like that, but you don't need it. It's a want, not a need. What would you say you really need? What's something that you must have? Something that you cannot live without? Most people would say it's things like food and water. We need clothing to keep us warm. We need a dry place to sleep at night. These are things that we need to survive. They are the bare essentials that we really need. Modern psychologists have even introduced a new category of perceived needs into the vernacular. They say we have... Psychological needs, emotional needs. We need to be loved. We need to feel respected and accepted. We need to feel secure. These are all mental states that we must have in order to be mentally healthy. They're psychological needs, according to modern psychologists. What do you think? What is it that you truly need? That's the question that Jesus is going to answer for His disciples in our passage here this morning, which again is Matthew 14, verses 13 through 36. He's going to show them what they really need more than anything else. So if you haven't already done so, please go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, and let's go ahead and begin by reading this passage together. Again, Matthew 14, verses 13 through 36. Matthew writes this. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Truly you are the Son of God. And when they crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. The passage we just read occurs at the beginning of a new phase in Jesus' ministry, one which will be marked by increasing hostility towards Jesus and his disciples. This period of hostility opens with news that Herod thinks that Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. John was really the last of the Old Testament prophets. His role was to introduce Israel to the one who would establish the new covenant that God had long ago promised to the people of Israel. Herod kills John, in part at the behest of his niece, in part because John opposed Herod's marriage to his brother Philip's wife. And when John dies, that's a signal not only that the Old Testament will now soon draw to a close with the establishment of the new covenant, but also that Israel's rejection of its Messiah is sealed and that He and His disciples will now face increased hostility from this point forward in their ministry. If we're looking here at verse 13 in our passage, it starts by saying, Now when Jesus heard this, and that should draw us back to the very last thing that Jesus heard in the previous passage. Normally that would take us back to the previous verse. Verse 12 where it says that John's disciples took his body John's body and buried it and then reported this to Jesus. Verse 13 would then read like this. Now when John when Jesus heard about the death of John the Baptist. That's the this, the death of John the Baptist. However, when we dig into the text, we learn that this report about John the Baptist's death actually comes at the end of a kind of flashback, meaning that the news of John's death was not the last thing that Jesus heard about. John had died sometime earlier, and then John's disciples came and told Jesus. And then sometime after that, they reported that Herod heard of Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist, he has been raised from the dead. And Jesus has heard about this. So John dies. John's disciples come and tell Jesus that John is dead. And then sometime after that, somehow, news reaches Jesus that Herod is saying these things about him. Chronologically, that's the this that Jesus heard about in verse 13. It goes all the way back to the news that occurs up in verse 2 here of chapter 14 that Herod thinks that Jesus is John the Baptist. This report is the very first sign of hostility that occurs at this particular phase in Jesus' ministry. It's not that Herod is expressing any hostility towards Jesus just yet. If anything, he's probably afraid of Jesus right now more than anything else. But at the same time, the conditions are ripe for this accelerated hostility to begin. After all, Jesus is not John the Baptist raised from the dead. And at some point, Herod is going to figure that out. And what's going to happen then, right? I mean, Jesus and John shared the exact same message. They both proclaimed, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So if Herod put John to death, then what can Jesus expect? He can expect that the same thing is going to happen to him as well. That's the setting for this morning's passage. Jesus is learning that the hostility against his ministry is about to break out. It's beginning. So how does Jesus respond to this news? What's the first thing on his docket in this post-John era? We see the answer in the very next phrase. Verse 13 says, Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there on a boat to a desolate place by himself. This is Jesus' response. He withdraws. But he doesn't do this because he's scared. And I think we should make this clear. In fact, the reason why Jesus avoids this conflict th- doesn't appear to have anything to do with himself whatsoever. No, Mark tells us in Mark 6 that Jesus received this report about Herod while his disciples were on this mission in the Galilean countryside proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. And when they get back, when they get back, Jesus tells them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For, Mark explains, again Mark 6, many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. The idea is that the disciples have come back exhausted from this mission as they're rapidly moving through the cities and villages of Galilee and you know, they're, they're exhausting themselves in the process. And about the time they come back, Jesus hears this report about Herod and rather than, than expose his tired disciples to the rigors of what's about to unfold in the face of this hostility in and around Galilee, he withdraws with them in order to give them time to rest. So this is the first move that Jesus makes in this new phase of his ministry. He understands that the heat of ministry is about to turn up. Things are about to get hectic. And so his first move is to give his exhausted disciples a breather. He wants to give them a rest before they begin this mad dash to the cross, which is actually going to occur just a little bit over a year from this point. So he gets into a boat with his disciples. He retreats to a desolate place, to a place across the Jordan River and along the northeast Uh, shore of the Sea of Galilee, a place near the city of Bethsaida, Julius, according to Luke 9. This is a region that is outside the jurisdiction of Herod Antipas. The disciples would be safe here. They should be able to rest a while here without any sort of provocation before they venture back into Galilee. But then in the second half of verse 13, we discover that by the time they arrive, there's already this crowd that's awaiting them there. Matthew doesn't really tell us how they managed to beat Jesus and his disciples there, other than to say that they followed Jesus on foot. But the idea is that the crowds watched Jesus and his disciples sail away And as they sail away, they see the general direction they're headed in. And so they spread the word around and people from all the surrounding towns and villages come streaming to the shoreline, traveling along the coast, kind of parallel to the boat as it moves very slowly, very leisurely to its destination. And so when the boat finally pulls into shore, there's already this huge crowd there that's waiting for Jesus and his disciples. If I could put it this way... The disciples' mission in Galilee was incredibly successful. Everyone was hearing about the power of Jesus, and now already, already, there would be no rest. So what are the disciples to do in this situation? They're harassed. They're exhausted. How do they respond? How do they move forward? What is it that they truly need to endure this daunting mission that's being set before them? And that's what Jesus is going to show them. And he's going to do it in the form of two miracles which occur here by the end of chapter 14. So let's go ahead and look at these together. The first miracle, of course, is the feeding of the 5,000, which occurs between verses 13 and 21. In this miracle, Jesus pulls ashore and he sees this great crowd there awaiting him and the sick that they've brought to him to heal and Matthew says he feels compassion for them. In fact, the word here is splachnidzomai. And it means literally to be moved in one's bowels. I mean, it almost kind of sounds like it, right? Splachnidzomai, you know, moved to the bowels. This is where the Greeks believe that the emotions resided, in the gut. And the idea here is that Jesus was emotionally moved when he saw this crowd. Here's this group of Israelites who have been greatly afflicted by the effects of sin's curse. And they've had to travel all this way to see Jesus because of the actions of wicked men like Herod. But they've done it. They've come here to see Jesus, and they've come here because they believe that he can help them. Israel's king sees this, and he's troubled. He isn't disturbed that this crowd has Ruined his plans for rest and refreshment. He doesn't get upset. Instead, he's moved with compassion for them. As evening approaches, the disciples start to grow concerned. They see that it's starting to get late, and they're concerned that this crowd is going to be left there without anything to eat. And so they ask Jesus to dismiss the crowds so they can go into the surrounding villages before nightfall. They say, verse 15, this is a desolate place. And the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. If you think about it, the implication is that they're actually interrupting Jesus in the midst of this ministry. Jesus is healing the crowds. According to Mark and Luke, he's also teaching them about the kingdom of heaven. And he's doing this on into the evening. And so the disciples interrupt Jesus and they tell him to dismiss the crowds so they can go and get something to eat. And to be fair to the disciples, this this is a noble thought, right? They're expressing the same kind of compassion for the crowds that Jesus is. They want the people to be cared for. They don't want them to go away hungry. They just don't realize the resources that are presently available to them in the same way that Jesus does. So they implore Jesus to end this meeting and send the crowds away. Jesus, of course, is not so easily deterred. Again, his compassion for the crowd is great. He doesn't want to dismiss this people. And so he tells the disciples, verse 16, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. And this is where the lesson of this first miracle really begins. The king is there before his people, he's wanting to extend compassion to them, and this is expressed not only in his healing and his teaching, but in this command to his disciples to give them something to eat. In other words, Jesus has already expressed his compassion to the people personally by miraculously healing their diseases, and now he wants his disciples to extend his compassion for him on his behalf by giving them something to eat. And this is important. Jesus involves his disciples in the miracle that we're about to see here. This matters because this miracle that Jesus is about to perform, he's going to use it to teach the disciples where the sufficiency for their ministry comes from. He's going to show them how they will have the power to do the kinds of things that he's going to ask them to do on this upcoming mission. So Jesus tells his disciples, I don't want to send the crowds away. I want you to give them some food for me so they can stay. And the disciples don't know what to do. They say to him, we only have five loaves here and two fish. As we'll see at the end of this story, there are about 5,000 men here. And that's just the men. With women and children included, this could easily be two or three times that amount. I mean, a a multitude the size of Carthage is standing there before Jesus and his disciples. This is a crowd large enough to fill a a college basketball arena. Jesus has told the disciples to feed this massive crowd. And the disciples are standing there looking at these, you know, five loaves, which, just so you know, they wouldn't be like French bread loaves even, or something like that. These are more like buns, like, like hamburger buns. The disciples are standing there looking at these five hamburger buns and these two fish, and they're going, uh, Jesus, I mean, how are we supposed to do that, right? I mean, this is all we've got. And that's the point. This is what Jesus wants. He wants the disciples to realize that they can't do what he's asking them to do. And he wants them to realize this so he can teach them the lesson that's about to come next. In verse 18, Jesus tells the disciples to bring him the loaves and the fish. And in verse 19, he orders the crowds to sit down on the grass, literally to recline as Jews would have done in preparation for a meal. And he looks up to heaven he says a blessing over the loaves and the fish. And just so you know, this isn't some kind of magical incantation or something like that, that he mothers, this is even, if you think about it, this isn't even a prayer uh, where he asks God to perform the miracle that we're about to see unfold. He's simply giving thanks as any person would before a meal. That's what John confirms for us in John 6. Jesus thanks God for the meal that they're about to eat. So he takes the loaves and the fish, he says this prayer, and then he breaks the bread and he gives it to his disciples. Uh, Matthew actually doesn't say anything about the fish here, but the other gospel writers tell us that Jesus divided these up as well. And in a scene that really leaves, I think, a lot to the imagination, the disciples proceed to go and distribute this food to these thousands of people. And they all eat and they're satisfied. Now, If you were to ask me what this event looked like in action, I have to tell you, I I really have no clue. None. I mean, none of the gospel writers describe how this food was multiplied. They just say it multiplied, and it filled everyone, and they were satisfied. And the word for satisfied here is kortazo in the Greek, and it means to be filled. In other words, they didn't just eat enough to satiate their hunger for a little while. It wasn't like they just took a little like postage stamp of bread and go, oh, I'm good for a couple of hours. No, it means they were full. They were stuffed. Jesus provided more than enough food for all the people with these five loaves and two fish. In fact, by the time the disciples are done, there are still 12 baskets worth of food remaining. So there's even more left over than when Jesus started Twelve baskets, by the way, that corresponds to the number of disciples here in this passage. And the word for basket here is a specific reference to a small kind of wicker basket that people would use to carry provisions for themselves on a journey. In other words, there's enough left over after the feeding of the 5,000 for the disciples to eat as well. You know, these disciples who didn't have time to even eat, remember? There's enough left over for them to stuff themselves with as well. So, not to read too much into this, because Matthew doesn't really stress this point, but Jesus withdraws because his disciples are too busy even to eat. They're immediately gre- greeted by this large crowd. They they minister all day, and at the end of it, Jesus miraculously provides enough food, not only for the thousands of people who came to see him, but also enough for his worn-out and tired disciples as well. Now, if we were to stop right there, This would be a remarkable story with an incredibly powerful lesson for Jesus' disciples. Jesus asked them to do something they can't do. He asked them to feed these thousands of people. And then after admitting to Jesus that they can't do what he's asking, he then performs this supernatural feat that allows the disciples to do exactly what he wants them to do. The point here really should not be missed. Again, Jesus involves his disciples in this miracle. He doesn't just cause the bread and the fish to come raining down out of the heavens to feed the people himself. Instead, he commands the disciples to feed the people. Of course, they say they can't, and then he gives them the bread and the fish they need so that they can. Again, Jesus doesn't feed the people, the disciples do. Jesus multiplies the bread and the fish, but the disciples are the ones who distribute them in fulfillment of this command from Jesus. This is all an incredibly important lesson for Jesus' disciples. Their sufficiency for the ministry in front of them, it comes from Jesus. They aren't going to do the things that Jesus is asking them to do by their own power, they're going to do it by His power. There are some significant allusions going on in this passage as well. For example, earlier in this gospel, Jesus performs a a few different miracles that mirror miracles performed by the prophet Elisha. Uh, The cleansing of the leper, for instance, uh, followed immediately by the healing of the centurion's servant. These things mirror Elisha's healing of the leper Naaman. Uh, The raising of Jairus' daughter mirrored the resurrections performed by both Elijah and Elisha. Uh, This miracle also mirrors a miracle performed by Elisha. At the end of 2 Kings 4, Elisha takes about 20 loaves of barley and some fresh ears of grain, and he uses it to feed the 100 men who belonged to his prophetic guild. And there are some elements in that account that closely mirror what we're seeing here in the feeding of the 5,000. But really, the greater illusion, the one that Matthew doesn't necessarily spend a lot of time highlighting here, in part because he doesn't have to, is the allusion to Moses and the Exodus. John brings this similarity out much stronger than Matthew does, even going so far as to say uh, that Jesus performed this miracle when the Passover was at hand. During the Passover, of course, God delivered His people from Egypt, and as He delivered them, He gave them manna from heaven. And it says in Exodus 16 that when the people gathered this manna, quote, that they uh, measured it with an omer. Whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. So there we see that there was this perfect amount of bread that was given to the people of Israel during that miracle and you see the same thing going on right here. There's really no waste. Even the extra that the disciples collect, this is sufficient to provide for them. Jesus provides an absolutely perfect amount of bread in this miracle, just as God did with the people of Israel and the manna in the wilderness. Not only that, Jesus also multiplies not just the bread, but the fish as well, just as God gave meat to the people of Israel in the wilderness too. Oh, and uh, speaking of the wilderness, uh, Matthew says that Jesus performed this miracle in a desolate place. The word is actually eremos in the Greek, and this is the same word that the the Septuagint uses to translate the Hebrew word for wilderness in the book of Exodus. So Jesus performs this miracle in the eremos, in the wilderness. This is the really strong connection in this passage. And in John's account, the people clearly perceive the significance of it all, even showing up to Jesus again the next day, commanding that he do the miracle again, saying... What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. That's what the crowd says the next day after this miracle. So this is really the the dominant implication of this miracle. It's drawing this connection between Jesus and the manna. And this matters because God explains Uh, that the purpose of the manna in Deuteronomy 8 comes back to His people's obedience to Him. If you would, go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Once again, that's Deuteronomy 8. In Deuteronomy 8, God is reconstituting His covenant with this second generation of Israelites who are coming out of Egypt. He's urging them to do and keep His commands as they enter into Canaan. And then, uh, as he's doing this, he explains the purpose of the manna. He, he recalls their accounts in the wilderness, and then he explains the purpose of the manna to them in chapter 8. Saying in verses 1 through 3. The whole commandment that I command you today, shall be, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply. And go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. He might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord." What was the purpose of the manna? It was to teach Israel that they depended on God. God says it plainly right here, he used it to humble them and to teach them that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God brought forth this manna, this bread that they did not know, nor did their fathers know, this stuff that they didn't even know existed. And he brought it forth to teach them that God is the one who keeps them alive. It isn't the bread that gives them life, it's God. It's the one who makes the bread who gives them life. He's the source of their life, not the bread. And God taught them this lesson. He provided them this supernatural bread. He fed them with resources that they didn't even know existed. Why? Why did he do this? So that they would be careful to do the command that God was giving them that day. He gave it to them so that they would be obedient to his command realizing that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now, I ask you, do you think that this lesson would have been an important lesson for Jesus' disciples to learn at this stage of their ministry? These harassed and worn-out disciples, this small remnant of faithful believers, these 12, right, listen, these 12 disciples who are about to constitute the foundation of Jesus' church? These disciples who are being called to serve as God's messengers to the world, just as Israel was called to serve as God's kingdom of priests before the nations? These disciples who are facing off against Israel's religious leaders, who are facing off against the Herod Antipas' of the world, just as their fathers had faced off against the Canaanites and the descendants of Anak who dwelt among them? Do you think this miracle... With this comparison to the man in the wilderness, do you think it would have been an important lesson for these disciples to learn at this stage in their ministry? Of course it was, right? And this miracle was hugely significant for Jesus' disciples. They knew exactly what it was teaching, and they held it in incredibly high regard. This miracle teaches the disciples that their greatest need is Jesus. He's the one who who gives them this bread that comes out of nowhere. He's the one who can enable them to do his will. Will. What they truly need more than anything else is him. The Old Testament message about the manna, it's being redirected towards Jesus. The disciples do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of Jesus. This is a hugely significant point for Jesus' disciples. In fact, did you know of all the miracles that Jesus performed before his crucifixion, that this is the only one, the only one, that all four gospel writers record? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they all record this miracle. You can't say that of any other miracle that Jesus performed. So again, this is a hugely important miracle for Jesus' disciples. This lesson left a significant imprint on every single one of them. They remembered and talked about what Jesus did here alongside the Sea of Galilee, just as the people of Israel rehearsed the events of the Passover and passed down that story to their children from generation to generation. And again, if we were to stop right here, that would be enough to kind of process and think about for a while. The problem is that Matthew begins this very next verse with this word immediately. Immediately. He says, verse 22, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. The idea is that this next event happened right away. So really, if we're going to treat these accounts with integrity, we can't stop to breathe here. We have to keep pressing on. We can't stop to take all this in just yet. In fact, if you notice here, Matthew doesn't tell us how the disciples even reacted to this miracle just yet. And really, this is because the disciples don't seem to have even had time to react it. They haven't had time to process it all yet. The miracle is completed and before the disciples can even pause to consider what just happened, Jesus is telling them, get into the boat and go meet me on the other side. Really, we don't know how we should interpret this miracle yet. It's still developing. We're going to see the disciples' reaction to these miracles in a few more verses at the end of this next miracle and then I think we'll know how to interpret both of these events because they're all just one story combined together by this word immediately. So again, Jesus rushes the disciples into the boat right after this miracle has been performed. And this can seem like a sort of an odd reaction on Jesus' part, but John tells us that when the crowds witnessed this miracle, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world, which is a reference to this promise in Deuteronomy 18, where God said that he would send a prophet like Moses to the people. Uh, The people see this miracle and they understand it. And they see Jesus as the fulfillment of this promise. And so they get ready to seize Jesus and make him king by force, John says. So actually this oddly kind of hostile situation breaks out in the wake of this miracle. So powerful was the sign that Jesus just performed. And he tells his disciples to leave while he stays behind to defuse the situation and dismiss the crowds. And then comes the second miracle. The miracle that's going to tie all this together for Jesus' disciples in a way that they could have never anticipated when they first set out from Capernaum to go to this desolate region. In verse 23, Jesus dismisses the crowds. And then he goes up on the mountain by himself to pray. He withdraws from the crowds once again, this time to spend time with his heavenly Father. And as it relates to the development of the story, the significance of this withdrawal is twofold. First, it continues this exodus theme established by the feeding of the manna, the feeding of the 5,000. After Jesus multiplies the loaves, he ascends up onto the mountain to spend time with God just as Moses ascended into the pillar of cloud on Mount Sinai. Second, it indicates that from the disciples' perspective, at this point in the story, Jesus is headed in the opposite direction. He dismisses them and they go out to sea and as they pull away from shore, they watch him dismiss the crowds and then they see him head up the mountain. He's not following them. He's going to spend some time alone by himself. By verse 24, the the boat is now a long way from land, and Jesus is up on the mountain alone. John tells us that the disciples were about three or four miles away from land, which isn't very far, considering that, according to verse 25 here, this is now the fourth watch of the night. Uh, The fourth watch of the night uh, started at three in the morning. So the disciples have rowed only three or four miles in maybe eight hours. And that tells you how slow they're moving here. The distance is still far enough to separate Jesus from his disciples, so they're not terribly far, considering the amount of time, but it's far enough that they're separated from each other. Now, the reason why the disciples haven't gotten very far is stated in the second half of verse 24, where it says that the boat was being beaten by the waves and the wind was against them. Back in chapter 8, we see the disciples encounter another uh, weather event like this while crossing the Sea of Galilee. The boat is being swamped with water in a storm. And in that account, the disciples believe they were about to drown. The picture here actually isn't quite as dramatic as that one. Uh, none of the gospel writers indicate that the disciples believe their lives were in, dan- in danger in any way. Here, uh, there's just this incredibly strong headwind that seems to be preventing them from getting where they want to go. No doubt the water is incredibly choppy. As it says here, the boats are being beaten by the waves, but this doesn't appear to be a storm exactly. And I say this not only because not only does Mark say that Jesus could see them on the water from the mountain, but also because the disciples can see Jesus approaching them on the water. So there's this strong headwind, but this isn't a storm exactly. The water's choppy, the wind is howling around them, they're rowing with all their might, but it's not exactly a storm here. And then, as they're rowing, verses 25 to 26, they see this figure approaching them on the water. Remember, John says that all this occurred when the time of the Passover was at hand. So there was either a full moon or a nearly full moon out at this time. The idea is that there was enough light for them to look out and see onto the water. Well, as the disciples are rowing against this headwind, they look out on the water And they see this shadowy figure approaching them under the silvery light of the moon. And it's walking on top of the water. They see this figure and they cry out. I mean, I would think the same thing. They go, it's a ghost, right? And this remark is, I think, incredibly important to understanding the point of this story. They see this figure approaching them on the water and they don't say... Hey, look, here comes Jesus. That's not their first reaction. No, their first reaction is to say, it's a ghost. And this matters for a couple of reasons. Again, first, it matters because it tells us that they don't know who's approaching them right now. This is a mysterious figure from their perspective. That matters because the rest of this story is going to be about discovering the identity of this mysterious figure, who is approaching them. In other words, contrary to what we're so often told about this whole encounter that follows with Peter, the lesson of this miracle is not about how we need to simply have more faith, kind of push ourselves forward to believe more. That's not what this is about. This is about Jesus' identity. Jesus' identity is being revealed to the disciples through this miracle. That's the first reason why this exclamation matters. The second is because this reaction shows us how little the disciples really know Jesus at this time. Even though they just left Jesus back in the same direction that this figure is coming from, they still don't perceive that this could be him. In fact, in Mark's account, he even says that once the disciples discovered that this was Jesus, they were astounded. And he says, quote, For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So the significance of the feeding of the 5,000 was not yet understood by the disciples. And so they're not expecting Jesus yet. And yet by the end of this account, they'll discover that this is Jesus. And when that happens, they will also perceive the meaning of the feeding of the 5,000. So Jesus is approaching and they don't recognize him. They don't think this could be him. They think this is a ghost. They cry out in fear. They screamed in fear. That's actually another way you could translate this. I mean, here's this this ghost approaching them. And think about it. They're trapped on this boat and they can't paddle away. I mean, you can probably picture it like, you know, they're they're really starting to dig into the water by now, right? And they see this ghost approaching them on the water and, and they're getting nowhere. The ghost just keeps getting closer and closer. So they're absolutely terrified. And they scream out in fear. Jesus sees this commotion erupt on the boat. And verse 24 says, Immediately he spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. He tells them, Calm down. He says, Guys, take it easy. It's just me. And now I think we get to the heart of the story. Peter says in verse 28, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Listen to that again. He says, Lord, Lord, If it is you, if it is you, then command me to come to you on the water. Again, the whole point of what we're about to see unfold here relates not to Peter's faith per se, but to Jesus' identity. Peter still isn't sure who this is. He's certainly willing to find out who this is, and in the course of the story, he will find out, but right now, he's still not entirely sure. He says, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So who exactly does Peter think this is right now? That's the question we really have to answer because in a moment Peter is going to falter in his faith and the reason is because whoever he thinks this is right now by the time he gets out on the water and begins to see the waves he begins to doubt if it's really them. That's what's going to make him sink. He leaves the boat thinking you know this is and you can fill in the blank but then as he sees the wind he's going to think it's not and he'll lose faith and begin to sink in the water. So who does Peter think this is? The obvious answer is Jesus, right? After all, this figure is coming from the shoreline where Jesus fed the 5,000. And when Jesus says, it is I, surely the disciples are supposed to recognize who that is, right? When he says, it's me, they're supposed to know who that is. Surely they recognize Jesus' voice even, and they know that it's him. That's the easy answer, but I don't think it's as simple as that. I think Peter thinks this is Jesus. You know, when Peter gets out under the water, does he think this is Jesus? Yes, yes. But I don't think he believes it's just Jesus. After all, the disciples don't understand the significance of the feeding of the five thousand yet. Just yet, they don't think Jesus. They don't think Jesus, at least as they know him, that he's capable of this. You know, it's interesting. Do you do you know who treads upon the waters in the Old Testament? Do you know who walks upon the waters. We read an example of this earlier this morning during our scripture reading. Psalm 77, 16 through 20 says this. It says, When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. It says, Your way was through the sea your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron." You hear that? Who's walking on the water in this passage? It's God, right? That's not insignificant in relation to our text. This passage speaks of God walking on the water during the Exodus, right? During the Exodus. And that's the context for our passage as well. The feeding of the 5,000 was this clear reference to the exodus. The disciples just witnessed that. So who might they think is out there walking on the water? If it's not a ghost. What's even more interesting is that when Jesus answers his disciples, once again, he says, take heart, it is I. But do you know that when he says it is I, the words there in the Greek are "ego eimi," which is literally "I am." God says in the Old Testament, "I am." This is how it's translated in into the Greek: "ego eimi ha on." "I am that I am. I am the one who is." I think that when Jesus says, "Take heart," it is I. "Take courage," I am literally. He's pointing to his deity he's telling the disciples that the reason why they should not be afraid is not just because it's him, Jesus, but because he, Jesus, is also God. He's the one who treads upon the waters. So what they're seeing shouldn't alarm them. This is expected behavior for such a one as Jesus. So when Peter says back to Jesus, if it is you, I don't think he's saying to Jesus, if it is you, Jesus, and not a ghost. That issue's already been resolved. He can hear Jesus' voice. He can see where Jesus is coming from. He knows that this is Jesus. That much is clear. When Peter answers, Lord, he's saying that to Jesus. But when he says, Lord, if it is you, literally, Lord, if you are, When he says this, he's saying, If you really are the one who treads upon the waters, if you really are the Lord, the one you're claiming to be right now, then command me to come out to you. Again, he knows this is Jesus. The thing he wants to know is if Jesus really does have the kind of authority that he's claiming in this moment. Is he just Jesus? Meaning, is he only a prophet? That, that, you know, similar to like what we find with Moses or Elisha? Or is this the Lord? There's only one way to find out. Peter says, if you are, if you are the Lord, then command me to come to you. This will get down to the bottom of Jesus' authority. Is Jesus just a man being empowered by God to tread upon the waters? Or does he have this kind of authority in himself? There's only one way to find out. Jesus, you command me to come out to you, Peter says. This will demonstrate where Jesus' authority comes from, right? If Jesus can command Peter to come, to enable Peter to walk on the water, then it's clear that Jesus isn't just the conduit of divine authority. He's the actual source of it. That's why Peter makes this request. He wants to verify this claim that Jesus is making as he walks upon the water. And to be clear, I don't think this is a challenge from Peter. Peter isn't saying this to discredit Jesus, he's saying this because he wants to believe. He wants to know for certain. He's asking Jesus to demonstrate himself so he can accept that claim. This is a request that's made with humility and faith. Jesus answers these kinds of requests consistently. And so in verse 29, he commands Peter to come. And Peter exits the boat and gets out of the water and he starts to walk to Jesus. This is amazing. I mean, Jesus' identity at this point is being confirmed, right? At this point, the realization should be happening that he is the one who treads upon the waters. He is the one who commands the winds and the seas. Or is he? Or is he? In verse 30, Peter looks and he sees the wind. Suddenly, he's not so sure. It says Peter saw the wind. Now you can't really see wind, right? But you can see the effects of the wind. That would appear to be what happens here. Peter looks down and he sees the waves that are being stirred up by this strong wind. And as he looks, he begins to doubt. I mean, walking on the water is a powerful display of authority over the created order. But does Jesus really have this power? After all, the wind is still blowing. Peter looks down on the waves and this very unstable kind of surface, and he begins to wonder if Jesus really does have this kind of power. He starts to think that maybe Jesus isn't the source of this divine power, that he can't uphold Peter. As Peter begins to think this, he begins to sink, and he cries out to Jesus, Lord, save me! And immediately Jesus stretches out his hand, and he grabs Peter and steadies him. Peter regains his footing again, not because of his faith right? But because of Jesus' compassion and grace, Jesus steadies him completely by his own power. He makes Peter stand. And then he asked Peter, oh, you have little faith, why did you doubt? He asked Peter why he couldn't believe that he was the one he claimed to be, why he couldn't believe that he had this kind of authority. After all, Peter had seen so many things that pointed to this reality, including the feeding of the 5,000 that he just witnessed. He commanded Peter to come out of the boat and Peter walked. walked, Why wouldn't Peter have believed that Jesus was more than just a man? Then they walk to the boat and they get in and guess what happens? Even the wind, the very wind that caused Peter to doubt This wind that they have been fighting for several hours, even that ceases immediately. Jesus removes absolutely every cause for doubt in this story. He confirms again that no, he is the one who commands the wind and the sea. All authority rests on him. And the disciples, they worship. They worship saying, truly you are the son of God. This is what this miracle confirms. This is what the feeding of the 5,000 pointed to. Jesus is not just a prophet. He's not just a conduit of divine power. Instead, he is the source of this power. He's, he's, He's more than just another Moses figure, right? He's the pillar of fire and cloud that goes out before the people to give them the victory. And so the disciples worship. In verse 34, they land at Gennesaret. And when they do, the people bring out their sick to Jesus Look at the way Jesus, or Matthew describes this here. He says that they implored him that they might touch only the fringe of his garment and as many as touched it were made well. In other words, the significance of these miracles is being confirmed over and over and over again. The people come out to Jesus to be healed and all they have to do is touch his clothes and they are healed. Again, divine power is resting on Jesus. I mean, this is not Moses interceding for the people of Israel, asking God to perform signs and wonders. This is God there among them, healing the people by his own divine prerogative. The disciples don't quite understand the significance of all this just yet. They're still wrapping their minds around it all, but they're getting there. They're beginning to put it together. By the time that Jesus is raised from the dead, it's going to all be incredibly clear. The significance of these things is going to make a ton of sense. So what's the lesson of this account? Back in the feeding of the 5,000, we saw that the disciples' provision comes from Jesus. He made them sufficient for their ministry. He was their greatest need. Here in Jesus' crossing of the Sea of Galilee... We learned why. Why did Jesus make them sufficient for ministry? Why do they need to come to him and ask him to give them the resources they need to serve him? Why do they need Jesus more than anything else? It isn't just because he's a great man. It's because he's God. It isn't just because he's a greater Moses. It's because he's the pillar of fire and cloud that led Moses and the people out of Egypt. He can literally think about this. Again, Jesus commanded them, go and meet me on the other side. They go out there. They can't do it. They're rowing in the boat. They can't do it. Jesus can literally stop the wind that is preventing them from rowing to shore in obedience to his command. So when they're growing tired on this mission, when they're discouraged, even when they're afraid, then they're to come to Jesus and to ask him to give them what they need. And again, that's not just because Jesus is strong, a great man, a great prophet. It's because he's God. He's the one who answers prayers. They have no reason to fear any man, neither Herod or anyone else. And the reason is because God is on their side. When you look at these miracles together, which is the way that we're supposed to read them, this is the lesson that we're supposed to come away with. Jesus is forming this new community of disciples and he's teaching them what the kingdom will be like. He's showing them what it means to live under the administration of the new covenant. And that the very core of this new life is a recognition that Jesus is not just another man, but the object of their worship. The one even that the disciples pray to and depend upon. The absolute centrality of Christ in the life of the disciple. That is the lesson of these miracles. He is the pattern, the means and the object of their worship. They are to render worship to him and through him and for him. He is both the purpose of their life and the means of it. He's not just a prophet that brings them into the kingdom of God and introduces them to God. He is God in the kingdom. It's about him. He's more than a savior. He is their Lord. In every sense of the word, he is their Lord. In short, these miracles teach the disciples that what they need more than anything else is Jesus. He is their greatest need. What they need more than anything else is not food or clothing or shelter or protection. What they need is Christ because he is the source and provider of all these things. He's the one who gives life, not bread. He's the one who will make them cross the sea, not their oars. What they need is is Jesus. And it's the same way with you, Christian. You want to know why I chose to preach this particular text this morning? It's because I thought it might be a good idea to be reminded of the fact that all you need in this life, all you truly need, is Jesus. That's it. That's all. There's not a whole lot more to it than that. I just know that this is a fact that we can sometimes lose sight of. And I think perhaps most especially in the midst of the consumerism of the holiday season or the turmoil that so often accompanies family visits. Who knows? Maybe you're you were facing situations like the ones the disciples are facing. Maybe you just faced one over Thanksgiving. Maybe you were sharing your faith and the conversation turned to Jesus and the result wasn't pleasant. And I just thought that in light of this, It might be a good idea to take a close look at this account and be reminded of the fact that what we need in these situations more than anything else, really the only thing we ever need, is Jesus. That's really it. That's all I have to tell you here this morning. All you need is Christ. It's a simple truth, but as we can see from this story, it can be a truth that's very hard to grasp as well, very hard to accept. And I think it's one that we need to be reminded of perhaps more than we realize. Let's close with a word of prayer.